You're listening to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring the best live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. Today's episode was recorded at Antidote, a weekend of ideas, action and change. Australian legal scholar Megan Davis, American writer Tanahasi Coates and South African writer Sasonke Msingmang consider the bitter legacies of colonialism which have played out across the histories of all of their countries. Beverly Wang chairs this discussion about the long-term implications of dispossession, institutionalised racism and white privilege. Sasonke Msingmang is a South African who writes about race, Democracy and Justice. She divides her time between Perth and Johannesburg, and she is the author of Always Another Country, her memoir. Megan Davis is a cobble cobble woman from Queensland, an expert member of the United Nations Human Rights Council's expert mechanism on the rights of indigenous people, and a member of both the Referendum Council and the expert panel on recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples in the Constitution. And Ta-Nehisi Coates, I know you don't like bios or introductions, so I'll just say that you are a writer. <laughs> All right. So just to kick things off, um, I'd love for each of you to share on the subjects of race, power, and privilege, what are the persistent questions that keep you up at night? <laughs> Megan, since you're closest, go for it. Um, well, obviously, from a domestic perspective anyway, I've been involved with the constitutional recognition process for about eight years, but for the bulk of my academic career. The big questions, I suppose, that keep me up at night on race and um, is, is, I guess, how uh, we, we are able to get structural reform in this country for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, some form of substantive recognition um, in the absence of any real understanding um, in Australia of Aboriginal history. Um, and so, you know, the exigency of reform is inextricably linked to Australian history. And unless you're a student of Australian history, it's very difficult to understand why people might be making claims for um, substantive rights, you know, not to be recognised in a symbolic way in the Constitution, meaning some sort of adornment or plaque in the Constitution that says these people were here, um, we killed most of them, but they're still here. Um, you know, that, that keeps me awake. Yeah. You know, what are we going to do to push this forward um, so that we can actually begin process of reconciliation because we, we're not in it at all mm -hmm. um, and how we start the process of settlement. And you say that we're not in this process at all despite the many years that you spent working in it. You feel like it hasn't... No, no, but, but, but I think that there's lots of reasons for that, yeah. including um, the very kind of um, contrived way in which the reconciliation process was set up in the first place. Mm -hmm. you know, it was set up because Prime Minister Hawke couldn't deliver on land rights or a treaty, so he passed a statute legislating a reconciliation process that went on for 10 years, and then at the other end, all of the proposals were rejected. Um, today, reconciliation is just about reconciliation action plans. Mm -hmm. you know, they're about co job covenants with corporate Australia. Um, Australia has wholly skipped the truth and justice part of reconciliation, and Australia thinks it can just move to reconciliation but it can't, and it can't because we have, we haven't, we're not even at the, the starting gate, I think. There's been some forms of truth-telling through bringing them home and the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths and custody, but we're really not at the, the okay. gate yet. So that's the conundrum for you. Yeah. How about you, Tanahasi? I mean, um, 
I guess to be blunt, whether white supremacy will destroy the world or not. Mm -hmm. um, that sounds very high-minded and like abstract, but um, I, I'm from a country that was founded on white supremacy. It would not exist without it, without, you know, as is true here in Australia, the destruction of the native inhabitants and the uh, purchase, enslavement, uh, and exploitation of large numbers of Af Africans, Africans brought over. Um, this, this was an enormous sense of wealth in America. Uh, in 1860, when we had our Civil War, this represented somewhere uh, on the order of something around $75 billion in wealth in today's dollars. 60% uh, of our exports uh, in 1860 were derived from cotton. Uh, 4 million enslaved Africans were the largest source of wealth, the largest asset in America, period but also greater than all the other sources of assets put together. So a trem tremendous amount of wealth. We had a cataclysmic war, and that wealth was effectively liquidated, if it's fair to talk about human beings in that, in that way. And the country never quite recovered from that. Uh, white people in America have never quite recovered from that. Um, they haven't recovered from Martin Luther King. They certainly have not recovered from Barack, Barack Obama such to the extent that uh, we have uh, elected, for the first time in American history, a uh, president who has not only no military experience, no governing experience. Uh, someone who, you know, I joked about this the other night, if he were black, couldn't even got off the street, mm. much less in, into the White House. Mm. This is who has access to the nuclear codes right now. Mm. And the reason why he got it, has access, and the way he got access was through the forces of white supremacy maligning the previous president as not being a, a legitimate <coughs> American citizen. It was a very, very old tactic in America, uh, making war against uh, 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 Latinos and immigrants from South America right now, making war against Muslims and Arab Americans right now, and not coincidentally, uh, making war, I would argue, against women in America. Um, this goes back to our history of white supremacy, and it is no longer merely a threat to black people in America. It's a threat to the entire world. This is a man who's conducting nuclear policy or nuclear negotiations via Twitter. <laughs> and the road to that is white supremacy. So when I say, you know, uh, you know that's what keeps me up at night, I am not uh, being bombastic. It's literally true. Sisonke, how about you? So lately, what's been keeping me up at night is these sort of egregious claims about white genocide in S South Africa. Um, because I think they do reflect many of the forces that both Tanahisi and um, Megan have, have spoken about, which is this sort of enduring idea about how important white people are in this world. So fundamentally important, more important than anything else. And so I think we have this, um, we have an incredible professor in South Africa, his name is Njabulo Ndebele, and he writes about the protections, um, the international protections of whiteness. Um, and so what happens with South Africa is it's the last outpost of white supremacy, right? It's the last place, this place in Africa where white people live surrounded by black people. And so in some ways, what happens to white South Africans, white people in many parts of the world feel like they care about, right? So that's why we've got Trump tweeting about mm. this supposed white genocide, which is a figment of um, many people's imagination, but also kind of for me, it's profoundly insulting because of the grace that black people in South Africa showed to mm. white people at the end of apartheid. 
so, so to have been effectively, um, to have been victims of uh, a crime against humanity, you know, the United Nations declared that, saw that, that apartheid represented a crime against humanity, right? And so for black people to have emerged out of that in 1994 with this extraordinary commitment to truth-telling, with no uh, request for justice, honestly, if we are honest about it, uh, the world loves Nelson Mandela for many reasons, but one of the things that happened is that Mandela negotiated for us a settlement which didn't lead to justice. It led to this fuzzy notion of reconciliation. And part of the process of tr truth-telling was that if you tell us the truth, white people, about where the bodies lay, about where the victims were, about who you killed, if you tell us the truth, we will live with you as if nothing ever happened. Mm. And so for South Africans to have done that, for black people to have had that grace to do that and to, and to really do it for 26 years, and then for white farmers who own, uh, who are represent a small majority of minority of the population, and own 70% of the land, mm. and who are victims of crime to the same extent as every black person in our country is a victim of crime, mm. which is a consequence of a violent history, for them to turn around and say they are victims of genocide, that mm. word is insulting. And so that mm. is what keeps me uh, awake at night. Thinking about the founding of these countries, um, but in particular, I guess, um, the Australian and American contexts, right? There's the history of the founding, and then there's the mythology that's get, yeah, that gets wrapped around it. And I think about the United States, and I think about Australia, and I think about the slogans that accompany both of these countries, land of the free, land of the fair go, the American way, the Australian way. Um, but clearly these, these slogans don't sit well with you if you think about, um, I suppose, the unresolved and open wounds of history that you must spend a lot of time thinking about. So just talk us through a little bit about how you, how you grapple with this um, intertwining of the black history and the white, white history in, this, in the same country and how they... Um, I guess we have these myths about meritocracy and success, and if you hard, work hard enough, anything is possible, but there are structures that impede that success, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, <clears throat> you know, the disadvantage we experience today um, is very much about structural disadvantage and structural oppression. When you look, I suppose, um, to the very early... Um, uh, British arrival, for example, and we saw the Daily Telegraph, I think, a year ago or two years ago, at the mention of... I think it was in, actually in a UNSW document about the use of the word invasion, and it became a front, you know, cover story the next day with Captain Cook on the front, and... And, I mean, it's been many years since Marbo. You'd be... Like, I was, I was a bit surprised that that was even a question, you know, that it was even questioned. Mm -hmm. but, but part of what, what we're doing in terms of broader constitutional recognition is to, to, is to wheel it all back to that really fundamental question, um, uh, you know, that, that period of empire where um, the, the arrivals in Australia were very much about the territory, um, t dispossessing Aboriginal people of the land. Um, following that, you had a very lengthy period of, of killings um, and massacres. 
um, that really only today we're starting to, to, to talk about. But, but certainly over 10 years working constitutional reform, you see that history, you know, butt up against the mythologies, as you allude to, in Australia about Australia's settlement. Um, at Uluru, we decided, as First Nations, to from now on call it an invasion. There is no question about that. <coughs> we never consented. We um, never ceded. The British never asked permission. The question of sovereignty is unresolved in this country, and it is the big elephant in the room, and it's the question that the state and many Australian people don't want to talk about. Um, and partly because what does justice look like? If you talk about the truth and you talk about what happened in terms of what was, you know, many people refer to it as extermination, mm. um, when the protection era, the benignly known, Australians love calling it the protection era, the benignly labelled protection era, which was really um, after the bulk of people um, had been massacred, they moved them off the lands into reserves and missions. Um, because it was easier then to establish the pastoral industries and push forward into, into um, other parts. You know, the political economy of Australia, Australia's settlement is, is killing, is massacre. And that's a conversation that we have to have. But, but then at Australia Day, and leading up to Australia Day, it's becoming so toxic, so intense every year. We have to sit through these stories about, you know, the, the settlement of Australia and stories of Captain Cook and Arthur Phillip. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of black fellows like me stay at home. It's nauseating. Mm. Um, the power of social media has meant that there's been some traction in terms of Aboriginal people being able to contest these mythologies and, um, and provide that space for Australians to think twice about what they've been taught at school and um, what they think about the Australian state. Um, but really, the, the huge battle that we're having in relation to any form of meaningful Aboriginal recognition, and recognition can mean something as small as a statement of recognition. In the Constitution, it might mean treaties or you know, regional autonomy. It can mean many things. But one of the biggest hurdles that we have is these stories that Australians tell about themselves. ta these stories are so powerful, aren't they? I mean, how do you um, even begin to push back on this idea that America is the land of the the free and the brave. I mean, that's that's foundational learning and internalization. Yeah, I mean, I I think um, well, let me, let me back up. Uh, one of the problems America has is, um, and this is parcel to this idea of being this land of the free is you know this sort of found font of of, of democracy, um, which which is true. Uh, the problem is that it's only half true. Uh, American democracy was literally made possible by enslavement. Um, you, you could not have one without the other. In America, it's often said that slavery was the great birth defect of this country, as though um, America is mostly right and did this one wrong thing. <laughs> but in fact, the, the, the one wrong thing is the entirety of the thing. It's how it was done. It's the actual methodology of it. Um, if you went to a state uh, such as uh, you know, Mississippi, which is in the southern United States, or Alabama, which is in the southern United States, uh, Louisiana, uh, in the era just before the Civil War, before emancipation of, of, of black people, uh, 
most of the people living in these states were, in fact, black. Most of the people living in those states were, in fact, enslaved. They were exploited, and labor was literally taken, taken out of their bodies. The wealth of it didn't just make for stability for the white population. It offered a sense of identity, a kind of civic virtue. Who am I? I'm a free, land-holding uh, white man who is not enslaved. Therefore, I have the right to speak. I have the right to be part of the democracy. I have a right to be part of, of, of the people. And, and, and these myths haunt us even to this very day. It's the reason why at, at, at this late hour, uh, there are people in the United States trying to strip black people of voting rights. Mm-hmm. There are people, you know, at, at, you know, in the state of Texas, you know, who are trying to revoke citizenship and passports, you know, from uh, uh, Latino and Hispanic Americans at this very, very late date. We um, have not been able to extract this uh, fake notion, and I think it's really, really important to say this, this invented notion of whiteness from the idea of citizenship. Mm. And it's a, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a huge problem. I mean, again, I, I, you know, I hate to go back to this, but I have to repeat. The greeting that the first black president of the United States of America got was that half at different points to the majority of the opposition party did not believe he was a citizen of the United States. That is incredible. Mm. That means they basically did not accept him as a legitimate president. Despite all evidence, despite all facts, the man went on TV, produced his birth certificate. And not only that, went and then elected the guy who was the chief person saying he wasn't a citizen to be president. That's how powerful the myth is. And more dangerous than that is the fact that I would argue, you know, the president himself, Barack Obama himself, and many of us who uh, would be considered good-hearted, you know, people have not accepted how powerful the myth is. Mm-hmm. We, we um, want to think that uh, the critical mass of America is good, is just, will ultimately do the right thing, is not motivated by greed, Avarice is not motivated by the desire of plunder, but in fact, our, our record shows something very, very different. And we just, we, we, we have Barack Obama that forwarded that myth as a fundamental very belief much so. in the goodness of the American people. But Sasanka, I see you nodding down there, yeah, and I want nods. you to come it's in. It's hard and not to nod with this think. panel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think for me, this, uh, for us in South Africa, this question of the land is the place where the myths begin. And it's very similar to Australia because the idea of terra nullius is foundational. That what happened is white people came to this empty land. And, and, and for, I mean, in South Africa, it's like, it's quite a trip because in, um, in 1652, this guy called Jan van Riebeek um, is sent by the Dutch East India Company to set up a trading post. So they say to him in Amsterdam, they say, Don't, we're not colonizing this place. We're just putting up a little trading post because there's all these ships going around the Cape of Good Hope. And so what we're going to do is uh, you're going to uh, have a few farms and make some produce and have a few cows so that there can be fresh provisions for the boats, right? So, so it's an entire, I mean, the entire thing is crazy. But the premise is, when you get there, there have to be people there, right? Because who's going to grow the produce? <coughs> How's this going to work, right? Because the boat does not have a lot of people on it. So they get there, they find unwilling natives who are not prepared. They had things to do. 
right? <laughs> people were busy, right? People were doing stuff. People were busy. So when they came to them with this idea that you guys are going to help us to farm this thing, they were like, no, we don't need to do that. We're not interested in doing that. We have our own lives. You can be over there, right? Because they didn't understand yet. And that's when the guns, guns come out, right? And that's when then this recreation, this rewriting, this mythology that the place was largely empty, which it wasn't. That, in fact, we know Hosa Nation is, has many, many people in it. By that time, you know, Hosa people were living in encampments of 50, 60,000 people, right? In one encampment, in one area. This is a rich trading zone, right? There's a lot of people there. And in the, if you look at the archive, if you look at the colonial archive and what they're saying about their encounters at that time, we have these two, we have the reality, which is that uh, Europeans are encountering large groups of Africans, and as they encounter them, they're scared of their numbers. So they're talking about the fact that there's so few of them in relation to the many black people, the hordes, they refer to them as hordes. And yet, somehow, there's this enduring mythology that what they found was an empty land, mm -hmm. right? So there is, it's not just a myth. I think what's really important to think about when we talk about this foundational stuff, whether it's America, whether it's Australia, whether it's South Africa, is that it's not just a myth. It is a deliberate act. There are, there are decisions. Because myth makes it sound like it kind of evolved over time, accidentally. <laughs> you know, like, somehow we arrived at this place where people think that you know, that believe in American exceptionalism. No, it's a, there's, there's a, a very clear way in which these ideas have been constructed because they suit particular interests. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the case of propaganda. South Africa, it's propaganda. That's the word. It's propaganda. Mm -hmm. Because what interest does it serve to talk about the land being empty? Mm -hmm. The interest is that you can then take over that land. Mm -hmm. You can own that land. And then we can now have a debate about the legitimacy of people who stole land and say it's, no, it's really their land. Many, and this crops up time and time again, even to this day in 2018, with all the evidence that we have, all the evidence we have that all the places where black people were, where they were living, uh, it crops up time and again. This land has been in our family for generations. It was empty when we got here. So it is, these myths exist for a reason, and so they, they, it's not simply a matter of educating people to, to know different, because if it was about education, then all the data that we produce, mm. all the arguments that we make would be mm. convincing, and then the myths would disappear. So they exist because they hold up the societies in which we live. They hold up whiteness, they hold up patriarchy, they hold up all these things, uh, and they benefit certain people. Let's talk a little bit about the idea of reparations, recognition, land reform, all the different terms that we can use to discuss trying to right these wrongs of the past. Megan, in Australia, as we well know, the um, statement from Uluru, which, which pushed for um, a constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament for Aboriginal people, was rejected out of hand. Um, when you encounter that kind of rejection, I mean, how do you, I guess, how do you regroup and think, well, okay, what do we do now? How do we, how do we try again? This, this idea of having to persist against this very, very strong rejection is one that I'm very curious to get your view on. Well, um, I mean, obviously the Uluru Statement from the Heart, we took a different approach to previous pushes for reform in that we issued it to the Australian people mm. um, because we, and as we all know from the past couple of weeks, 
we made a decision at Uluru that the parliament is not going to be able to do this. That... <laughs> Why not? Oh. I don't understand. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> Seems fine. <laughs> that, that, that we were going to need help to convince politicians because they're ultra-conservative political elite. And, and these days, they're just not interested at all in Aboriginal issues um, and certainly not in addressing unfinished business between First Peoples and the, and the Australian state. So we deliberately, we, you know, we uninvited the Prime Minister and Opposition Leader, caused a minor dim diplomatic incident, um, and decided, look, we're going to present this statement to, to Australians because they're the ones that have to help us achieve these reforms. Because, you know, we, do, we go to these festivals, we talk about this stuff all the time, and everybody nods in agreement. But when the time comes to get some help to push these reforms... Nobody's there. Everyone's I like, well, we were going to fix it today in this room in the 33 minutes that we had left. I or, don't know. But, but, or, you, but. or it's, it's, I'm going to sit here and nod, but really the only way you're going to get this up is for the blacks to be unified. Mm. I mean, that's the thing that we're struggling with now. Absolutely. Every Aboriginal person has to be unified. That's right. Nobody, there can be no tension, there can be no disagreement. But white just, people all disagree with each other. Yes, exactly. But I'll, I'll, I'll just park that for a moment. Okay. So we, we knew the parliament is incapable of doing this. Mm. So after Uluru, it, you know, it was said to us, just leave it to the parliament now. And we were like, you, you can't. These people are incapable of reform. But we do it in multiple areas in Australia. We live in a reform, inert era. They are incapable, whether it's climate change or productivity, or they, they are incapable of reform, or vision, for that matter. <laughs> so, so one of the things that did happen after Uluru was there was the rejection, but not much later, Turnbull put the voice, the Uluru outcomes, into the terms of reference for a parliamentary joint select committee. Um, and, and that was done because many Australians have stepped up to the plate and supported us in that reform. Um, we've heard it came up in micro-polling, that it came up in electoral offices where people were like, that seemed like a pretty fair reform. Why have you just rejected it without discussing it with us or debating with us? So, in fact, the Joint Select Committee's interim report came out three weeks ago, and the bulk of its work for the rest of the year is what does this voice look like and how are we going to get it to a referendum? So are you encouraged by that? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, these things never come easily. Yep. Um, but in terms of just the tail end of your question around reparations, mm. compensation, these are the big questions we really haven't had conversations about in Australia. And you, you heard for many years, for eight years, don't raise reparations, don't raise money, don't raise... Don't alarm the white people. Um, because they won't support it. And, and I've no doubt that's behind the political elite's preference for symbolism, for a token gesture of recognition. But, but at the end of the day, if the voice is set up and the voice is functioning and Australians get used to First Nations, so nations being the voice of their communities, not the special envoy... <laughs> ..then then eventually we will see the creation of, of this commission, this agreement-making commission, that involves truth-telling, but will involve necessarily conversations with Australians about what it looks like, about what reparations look like. ta when you come to Australia and you hear someone like Megan describing the obstacles that, that, that Aboriginal people face, 
in getting recognition and getting um, dialogue. What do you think? I think y'all are ahead of us. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a lot that's familiar, for yeah. instance, that don't raise it, you know. Um, but it's so, it's seen as so far beyond the pale. Um, and what is deeply sad is, like, uh, reparations is not, for my money, one way forward. It's actually the only way forward. Um, we have a, a very, very simple problem in America. There is roughly a 20-to-1 wealth gap. That means for every nickel a black family has, uh, your average white family has uh, roughly a dollar. Um, this did not appear by myth. Mm. <laughs> um, in, that that in, was, go ahead, go sorry. Ahead. Oh, just in the case for reparations, you write about how John Conyers, a longtime congressman, now resigned because of sexual harassment allegations. Yes. Um, <laughs> he had a, a bill where he, yes, um, where he was proposing continuously a study to make studying right. reparations. Where do, where's the future of something like that? I mean, we can't even get a study. And we probably will not get a study. It's a deep problem with reparations in America, I think goes back to you know, your, your last question. It's not the money. It's not uh, getting the money to, you know, uh, uh, or the wealth transfer. It's the fact that reparations deeply undercuts the myth of America itself. Um, again, as you asked, you know, this question of this you know, country, land of the free, you know, original font of democracy. What, what does it mean, not just to confess that you are, in fact, built on slavery? Everything about you was made possible through slavery, that you have no culture without slavery. Uh, you can't imagine America without Aretha Franklin. You can't imagine America without Louis Armstrong, without hip-hop. You can't imagine American cuisine without black people cooking in the, in, in the kitchens. America is literally unimaginable across the board, culturally, economically, politically, everything. Our greatest, uh, our most popular novel, Gone with the Wind, is a white supremacist novel. Our first great movie, Birth of a Nation, is a white supremacist movie. It is at the core of the country. And if you give reparations, you necessarily admit this. Mm. And this goes against all of the mythology, and it has our, our, our great repercussions, not just for black people in America, but for instance, when America wants to wage war on another country and wants to talk about, you know, uh, expanding the rights of the free, how can it do that when it's just admitted that, in fact, we were founded on slavery? So it's, it's a question of, 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 of morality. It's a question of founding myth. Uh, and so to, 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 to uh, give reparations to black people would require a profoundly different America. It would have to think about itself. It could no longer be... Uh, uh, a place that imagines itself as above the human experience, a republic of gods. It would be shattering, wouldn't, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it would be humbling. Yeah. Mm. It would be very, very humbling. Mm. So, okay, what about in South Africa? I mean, uh, land reform is a live conversation at the moment. I mean, South Africa is interesting because we're the, we're the majority, right? Black people are the majority. It's our government. We elect a, a majority black government, uh, and we've done so for the last 25 years. Uh, of course, the wealth remains in the hands of, of, of the white minority, uh, but we have political power, and that has some meaning. Uh, and so, but, but we, we hedge around uh, managing white anxiety, both within South Africa, but um, because of the connection between the protections of international whiteness that I spoke about earlier, what happens is white anxiety within South Africa spreads to the global markets. Right? So from the very beginning, the South African 
negotiated settlement was about managing white people's anxiety about what they would lose when apartheid ended. One of the things they were worried about losing was the political power, but the thing that they were really worried about losing was economic power, was their way of life, their privileges. And that hasn't, and that hasn't happened, right? Because we extended ourselves, forgave them, but what we really did more than forgive them is that we made the truth and reconciliation process, and this will be interesting for, for Australians, we made the tr truth and reconciliation process very narrow. So the reason why apartheid was a crime against humanity is because it was a crime against every single black person who lived in the country. It was an affront against us, right? You couldn't drink at the water fountains, you couldn't live in this area, you were issued a passport for a fake country. Like, talk about, we talk about fake news now. South Africa created fake countries, you know, these Bantustans that were not real, figments of the apartheid imagination to say black people belong in tribes that black people had not lived in or belonged to for many years, right? So, because of the way that um, apartheid affected every single black person, it was a crime against black people, it was a crime against humanity. In the TRC process, what we did was we defined crimes as families that had had um, specific human rights violations against them. So what it meant was the, the hearings and the national process was about forgiveness if someone had been murdered by the police, if someone had been um, executed, uh, if there was a death or a body or an abduction which is a much narrower set of people than every single black person who was affronted by the crime of apartheid and who suffered economically as a consequence of apartheid, right? Because there was job reservation, et cetera. So what it's meant is that we negotiated our way out of into white people's privilege being upheld at the expense of the vast majority of black people because we never put into the TRC process what we should have, which was, how do we make reparations? How do we calculate the cost of black people continuing to live very far from the economic center? That's what keeps black people in South Africa poor today, right? That you have to spend 60% of your salary every month just in taking transport into the city because black people were deliberately moved far away so white people didn't have to look at them, right? So these are the inequalities that are entrenched, that are economic, that are a consequence of apartheid, which we never dealt with because TRC, we focused it narrowly on the trauma of your body being beaten, but we were not interested in opening it up too wide because we didn't want the international community, white capital, to be nervous about what that would really mean. If we did proper reparations in South Africa, it would have been a very different, look like a different country. And so that's what we deliberately excluded from the frame. And this is the problem with reparations in South Africa. So it's a black government. We have political power, but we remain very much hostage to inter international sentiment, the sentiment of the markets, right? This, the market guy is so moody, right? <laughs> and he has a particular, the market guy has a particular view on black governments and the capacity of black people to manage money, the wealth of white people in a country like South Africa. Well, I mean, we were talking about this off stage about um, the truth-telling component that fell out of Uluru um, and that, in fact, the conversations in the Aboriginal dialogues in the 13 regions was about a very localised form of truth-telling that they would do in their region for their nation, um, their um, Aboriginal nation. 
Um, but, but since I was saying, since that um, some of those conversations have been hijacked by, by you know, political elites and black elites who are calling for, you know, royal commission, you know, we, everything in Aboriginal Australia gets parked in royal commissions these days. They're no longer used as an effective law reform tool, but as a kicking the can um, um, exercise. Um, but, but that's certainly not what was envisaged in, 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 in the dialogues, was to have a big, you know, Truth and Reconciliation Commission like South, 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 um, South Africa. But that really, I think, feeds into a really key issue here about um, people failing to hear what it is that people are saying mm. and what, what it is that they want. Mm. There's an American scholar called Jill Stauffer that writes about ethical loneliness um, and how you know, this failure to hear what people are trying to say haunts sites of reconciliation. And I think that's very much what's happening in Australia. And I, I, I really hope, in terms of the structural aspect of what truth-telling will look like, that it doesn't get hijacked by those people who think they know best, mm. but that it is done in a way that is, is communities feel like they have control over and, um, and that they feel comfortable with um, and we were saying some of the heavy lifting of reconciliation in Australia is done at a local level. It's done at very local levels with local communities, local historians, local councils. Um, local councils actually are really the unspoken, I wouldn't call them heroes, but of the re reconciliation movement. They do a lot of heavy lifting. Um, so um, I just it think it's... Be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, need were, to be really we were talking about uh, how, how Australia... Um, can do differently. I, uh, so I'm not an opponent of truth commissions. I think they are, can be powerful. In, and despite my crit critiques of what happened in South Africa, I think um, they were investigations that were important for families, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that we knew where people were. So that aspect of it, we all people like to forget, and they focus on the fluffy reconciliation, loving white people. But actually, the TRC was very much, uh, some of it was really about finding bodies, and that was important. And I think to the extent that in Australia, truth commissions are important, they're about very local processes mm -hmm. where people actually live, where, um, where apologies and recognitions of massacres really matter. It's there. It's not this uh, thing that's easily hijacked that exists sort of at this umbrella level um, that is too... It's dodgy. It, it's, it's interesting because I was saying to Beverly, there's one thing that really re resonated through the constitutional reform process, and I used to follow, you know, your tweets and some of your writings about people's responses to your book, um, and people would say in book reviews, "Where's the hope? You know, you're too pessimistic. Give me some hope." <laughs> and and this and that really um, has informed a lot of our thinking around this because that's what we get a lot from people. Post Uluru, we got a lot of. The truth telling will tell the good things too, won't it? It'll tell the coexistence stories, and it'll tell the. Um, you have to give white, white Australia hope, and um, and just really, you know, mirrored for me some of the things that you were saying about people's reactions to what you were writing. Mm. Um, we will open up the floor to questions from the audience. Um, there are microphones on the side. If I could please ask that you keep your. We have a full house, so if we can keep your questions questions and keep your questions brief. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I guess while we, oh, there's already, there's already a couple of people. Okay, so um, should we start here? Hi, uh, this question is, is for Mr. Coates. Uh, I would like to understand your thoughts on American imperialism and the war on terror, which many of us from the global south see it as another manifestation of America's racism towards the rest of the world and mostly 
the Global South. And we also found it difficult to reconcile the fact that a black president could continue with this policy and drop bombs in, I think last count it was about seven countries, which are all based in the Global South, and uh, kill so many black and brown bodies. So I would like to understand how do you kind of um, take that sort of a racism, which is uh, kind of more obviously um, impacts not America, but countries that I belong to. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy, actually. I don't mean pretty easy in a, in a good kind of way. It's, it's pretty easy. Uh, the same way uh, a black president could be head of a country and watch as black people in that country still suffer under some of the very same racist strictures that you know, would have impeded uh, his wife and his children. Um, Barack Obama is a symbol. And his greatest power is probably in his symbolism as a black president. Um, the reasons why bombs are being dropped across the world and why America um, makes war across the world is, is, is uh, systematic. It's part of the very idea of what America is. Oftentimes, you know, there was this whole debate, not before Barack Obama was elected, but certainly afterwards, about what the value of a black president was, and I always thought that what, what we had to do was think a little bit about what kind of black person could be president of the United States. Before, when we didn't actually think it was possible, it was this sort of abstraction, like you would see it in comedy and you know, films, because nobody actually believed it could actually happen. But th there are limits to what America actually is. There are things that America does that are you know, deeply, deeply troubling uh, for people like us. When we read about, for instance, when I read about you know, uh, uh, drones circling above and terrifying children. And I think back to being a kid and how, you know, I was, you know, living in a relatively, you know, high crime area and the helicopters would circle above. And we knew, you know, that that meant that the, the cops were coming and what cops did in black neighborhoods and the similarities between those things. Uh, the, the absence of legal process for who can be killed and who can't be killed. When you, you know, see that sort of thing and then you look in your communities and see the police doing the exact same thing you know, to black people in those uh, communities. A, a black person who wants to be president of the United States has to actually be okay with exercising that kind of power. Mm. That's the deeply tragic part of it. Uh, the questions of, of American power go much deeper than actually, you know, what, what your personal identity is. Barack Obama is still an American. And worse still, um, or maybe not worse still, I guess this is just a fact, black people are Americans. Black people are, in fact, arguably the oldest Americans, or next to the oldest Americans, next to the Native Americans. Uh, we were there before there actually was an American. Black people, by and large, believe in America, sometimes to our very detriment. You know, I think one, one of the exciting things about me being here, one of the things I'm, I'm looking forward you know, to doing over, over the next few years, I spend a lot of time writing about black people in America and trying to you know, understand black people in America, which is a job in and of itself. But exploring those connections you know, for black people here, for instance, how you guys even define black here, which is very, very interesting. You know? <laughs> um, and how people of color you know, are defined across the world and what those connections are and how we can you know, work together beyond uh, uh, these strictures of, 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 of nation. Um, it's a very tragic thing to have a black president continuing the same policies you know, as, as, as a white president. At the same time, I, I can't say I was completely surprised by that. Let's go over to the other side for a question. 
Thank you so much. Uh, I'm studying to be a primary teacher, so I'm very conscious of the power that I will have in a classroom as an educator, but also as a white person. And I'm very interested in being an ally, co-conspirator, choose your word. Uh, but I'm wondering, how do I teach about Australian history and um, particularly looking at things like the stolen generations and balance that against the fact that it's still current policy. We're still taking children on a massive scale in Australia. Um, and so how do I teach about those issues and be a truth teller and empower my students to ask questions of these structures and challenge those structural inequalities while balancing it against issues of trauma in a classroom where my, I might have children who are in out-of-home care because it's still current policy? Um, <laughs> so, well, I'm, I'm, I'm the chair of a current New South Wales government inquiry into Aboriginal child removals and out-of-home care, so I'm kind of limited in what I can say about that, except to say um, one of the things that we obviously find in, in our work, looking at a cohort of about 1,152 child removals over <laughs> a one-year period, um, is, is a very clear connection between those children and young people and the history of removals of their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. So that you referred to, I think, intergenerational trauma, which I think is a really important issue that needs to be spoken about. A significant part of that is, is having Australians, including caseworkers, understand what Aboriginal, the Aboriginal history of child removals or the Aboriginal history of just reserves and missions, the Aboriginal you know, history of compulsory racial segregation, why the compulsory racial segregation happened, you know, the stories of the massacres and the killings, like you go, you can go all the way back. Being a history teacher, of course, is really critical then to being able to convey to those young people um, that much of what you see today, such as child removal policies, is influenced by those policies of the past. The problem I find in Australia is people do not believe that link. There's also that attitude that, oh, well, come on, can't they just build a bridge and, and get over it? Um, there's also the important, I think, matter of being able to distinguish the removals during that protection era from the removals of today. It's done in a very different way and sometimes for different reasons and it's important to be kind of nuanced and layered and textured about, about that. But, um, but, but, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think they're inconsistent in, in terms of being able to teach your students about that or any other element of Aboriginal history. Um, you know, one of the things that I find today is that there's just so much information available. You know, if you look at some of the histories of the frontier wars now, you know, I look at Stephen Gapp's book, who I've been reading, the, the Sydney Wars, like, they're really excellent historians in this country who are bringing out a lot of really important stories about just how terrible, um, just how serious the massacres were. They were almost, as Noel Pearson argues, a very mundane part of Australian life. Mm. Um, the entire country's wealth is built upon the killing of these people and the decimation of these people and the you know, removal of them from the land and the dispossession of their land. Um, what's important in, in teaching that, of course, is that we are still yet to deal with that. We have not reckoned with that at all as a country. But it starts with the classrooms. 
So the expert panel in 2011, we did say to the minister, maybe you don't do a constitutional rec recognition process. What we're hear hearing from, you know, white Australia and Aboriginal Australia is that it's, Aboriginal history is not taught enough. You know, we were in Longreach and pastoralists were saying, we don't, we don't, we, all we know is the Anzac stories. We actually don't know our history even, let alone Aboriginal history. Um, and that's not a very glamorous thing to go back to a minister and say, dump the process for 10 years and just have a really intensive 10 years of you know, really excellent Australian history programs in primary schools and high schools. Um, but it came up again in um, the referendum council as well. So one of the things I would say is there's a very beautiful, the Uluru Statement from the Heart is about 18 pages. The top page is the one that was read out, but in it is an agreed story of all the First Nations from across Australia. It's called Our Story, and it maps the phases of um, history, of Aboriginal history. It starts with invasion, goes to the frontier killings, goes to compulsory racism, it goes right through to now. Um, and it's a really, I think, um, every single region contributed, but I think, you know, it's, no, it's, it's a story issued by Aboriginal people at Uluru last year, and we're really keen for Australians to read it and see what the history looks like through, through our eyes. So just a quick one for Sisonga. Um, it's around the future for South Africa, and you know when you think about the student movements like FISMAS for calling governments to task, you know access to education. When you think about how racists are being called to task, you know you think um, Adam Katsavelas, whatever his surname is. Uh, so, do you feel positive that you know black people are take standing their ground, that things are moving in the right direction, or do you just think it's empty? I think it's not about positive or negative because. Um, acts of black people standing up for ourselves and speaking out, uh, we do that as we look at large institutional structures. So they're not equivalent, right? So it is important that, that we speak out. So there's a mood in South Africa. Uh, there's a certainly a sense of confidence, of assertiveness. The quote-unquote born-free generation has come of age. So we're 26 years old as a country, and so those who are 25 and 26 are, you know, have just gone through university, they have challenged the government, they are challenging the narrative of the, the rainbow nation that you know, the world loves South Africa because of Nelson Mandela, and they call Nelson Mandela a sellout, right? Um, so there are lots of, uh, there's lots of myth bashing that's happening at the moment, and I think that can um, only be a good thing because a country like ours that has been so reliant on heroes, on these revolutionary heroes, uh, who have disappointed us, uh, but uh, you know when you rely on heroes, you would rely on individuals, and yet you're dealing with structures. So I think it's really good uh, the the kind of discourse that we're engaging in. I worry that in the South African context, we give too much uh, space. I understand it, but it bothers me uh, that we give too much space and attention to white people who hurt our feelings. I, I think the language around <coughs> racism and hurt feelings is dangerous uh, because of course people are hurt by racism, but often I'm not hurt by racism, I'm not interested in interpersonal uh, attacks on me. They don't hold power over my sense of myself. I'm totally, you know, if a racist calls me something, that's the racist problem. So I worry a lot about how much we continue to care about what white people think, uh, but I think that's a minor concern in relation to the larger issue, which is that standing up voices is good, but it's insufficient to counter the institutional power that whiteness continues to exert in a South African 
case. So we really need to deal with the economy. And over here. Hi, I'm just probably a bit of a personal question, but um, I'll come in my 50s. I've been in Australia. I was born in America and, and for 26 years and 28 years here. Um, it's exhausting being a person of color sometimes. I mean, like, I... <laughs> I've, I viscerally, you know, I fight the good fight. I'm talking it every day. I think it's amazing, the three of you up here, the fact that you can be doing what you're doing right now, despite everything. How do you personally, <laughs> how do you personally get through those moments when you're just like, I can't cope with it anymore? What do you do for your mental health? What do you do to, to, to get through it every day and get up and do what you do? Because it's amazing. Thank you. Um, okay, I'll answer that. Um, I actually wanted to answer the, the, the last question, okay. the question yeah, about sure. education, so I'll, I'll wrap it up together. So in South Africa, we've had this really interesting set of, uh, you know, what the previous question was referring to, which is these statues that have come down. Um, and at the University of Cape Town two years ago, uh, this young man uh, went to uh, one of the townships that's located uh, in the Cape Town area and brought a bucket of shit um, to the university because it's easy to find a bucket of human shit because of the way our public toilets work mm. because we are still so poor, mm. yeah? So he brought a bucket of shit and he threw the shit onto the statue of John, uh, Cecil John Rhodes. Mm. Um, and he began this movement called Rhodes Must Fall. Uh, it caused the greatest offense mm. that, that you can possibly imagine. It was like... The, the country was on fire because the act was seen as so fundamentally provocative that someone would sh throw shit on Cecil John Rhodes after whom Rhodesia was named. Like, this is a bad guy. Like, people, people, in, people in his generation, he's not a bad guy looking back at history. In his people time. in his time recognized him as a mean guy, right? This is a known fact. And the, and the shit on Rhodes statues, you know, sets South Africa on fire. I mean, it has been an amazing few years. So this is what this comment refers to, but it's about the symbolism. Um, you know, it's about this notion that roads must fall. And so the slogan, the hashtag for young people across universities in South Africa was roads must fall, hashtag roads must fall. And what it meant was we must decolonize these institutions, that we have to change the face of South African institutions, which remain you know, University of Cape Town, Africa's best university, uh, which is a very distinguished university, has two black professors. Mm. So this is, right, this is, this is in a 2018 South Africa, right, a black country. So I think this is an absolutely a great point about symbolism and how much it matters. In terms of the last question, uh, you know, I um, am a middle class black woman. I have a very nice life. So I don't find it exhausting to be black mm. at all. Mm. I, I have, there is nothing in my life that is very difficult. Mm. Uh, my kids live, my kids and I, uh, and you know, we live 300 meters from school. I don't have to travel long distances. I don't wear a uh, hijab. I wear a headscarf if I feel like it. Um, so my life because of my class position is actually pretty okay. So this is not to deny racism, but it is to say that, mm, that I'm not troubled by my skin color, myself, mm. that my experience, that I have room to breathe. 
and that I think it's incumbent upon those of us who have room to breathe to recognize that we are often acting as unelected spokespeople, you know, to sit on places like this, and that if you have the capacity to breathe and think and reflect, then it's important to take that seriously, even as you can't take it too seriously, because nobody, nobody, there was no black vote that said she will be the one who sits on the stage, right? <laughs> so you can't take it too seriously, but I think it is important to not uh, over-determine what it means to be black and living in Australia, because it's not horrendous for me. Tallahassee, hmm. uh, anything to add? Well, I think one of the, and maybe you know, it's similar to South Africa in, in this sense, um, no, I don't, I don't find it like personally onerous in, in, in the same sort of way. Um, but I think that's largely because um, in, in America, again, because the black community is so you know, old there, and because of the, the, the particulars of Jim Crow and segregation, there are a set of institutions, almost a country within a country, that allows you to reinforce yourself. So while I was very aware of racism as a child, I didn't have much direct contact with it. I went to school almost entirely, if not entirely, with black people until I was in high school. I went to uh, Howard University, which is a historically black college, and where there basically are no white people. Um, all of my friends derive from that place, and none of them are, are, are white. Um, I have six brothers and sisters. All of them are black. I'm, what I'm trying to sketch for you. <laughs> we are a world. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I have, like, a place to go. Do you know what I mean? Like, I have a, a, a very, very rich and developed, you know, community. I threw a, uh, you know, a party with a friend last February, 100 people, all of them black. You know what I mean? Like, I have a, I have a place. To, I don't live in a white world, if that makes any sense. I don't, I don't live with them. That's not where I make my, my home, you know? So, you know, when it gets too stressful, I just go home. Mm. I just go your, home. Find your home. How about you, Megan? Um, well, my team's here, and when, um, we're, we're all exhausted by the work that we've been doing on Conrec, and it's not going to end um, any time soon. Um, look, I've just recently been doing a lot of work up in far north Queensland with traditional owners, and it's, I still, it's still quite extraordinary to walk into restaurants in Cairns and just every single white person look up and just look at these TOs as if they're, you know... The, the ra racism is really profoundly terrible in this country. Um, you know, my father, my grandfather, they lived under the protection era. You know, I believe it was the Queensland Protection Legislative Architecture that mm, South, South Africa adopted yep. um, for their own apartheid system. Um, so, and I look at some of the young people, young Aboriginal lawyers and people in the audience, and, you know, it's, it's tiring for them, it's exhausting for them. Um, but the one way I look after myself is to watch rugby league. <laughs> We'll, we'll wrap it here, please. A big round of applause for Sasanka Missaman, Tanahasi Coates, and Megan Davis. Want more? Delve into our archive at sydneyoperahouse.com/ideas. You can also watch more talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House on our YouTube channel. <laughs>